0: Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Kim Knowles, professor of psychology at the University of Alberta. Dr. Knowles, welcome to Lost in Citations.
1: Well, thank you for having me here.
0: It's great to talk to a real psychologist. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, I don't know if you listen to all the episodes, but I think in one of the interviews with um, Ali al Hori, we had this great conversation about this whole concept of a, applied linguists and um, how, you know, how he really respects people that came from the school of psychology, like, you know, Gardner and yourself and Peter McIntyre. And then there was this shift in the 90s where, you know, people were saying, oh, we're, we're applied linguists. Um, and then he was saying, oh, shouldn't they be called applied psychologists or... Anyway, it's a cool topic. What what's your what's your kind of take on that? Do you do you do you sort of take pride that you're studying uh, language learning but with the 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 quote unquote real background of psychology? <laughs> well, I don't I don't
1: know that I would say there's a real background in psychology. There's certainly a naming problem. I'm not even sure from a linguistics perspective if applied linguistics is really uh I think that really falls out of old um, ways of thinking about linguistics. That any any time someone uses language, that somehow that's an application of language. When I think there's changing ways of thinking about language, that language use is <laughs> is not an application, but it's what we actually do as humans. Um, so uh, yeah, it's just such a, you know language is just such a fascinating area. There you know it, people across the social sciences all have an interest in, in how we use and learn and uh new languages it's just fascinating so i don't even think i don't think one discipline gets to own it even applied linguistics
0: yeah i i totally agree um today's uh topic is a chapter you you wrote um that you were the, the lead author on uh so Chapter Five and its self determination and motivated engagement in language learning. Can you give a little bit of a background of the impetus of this chapter and how it came together and how you chose your your co authors?
1: Well, it it was a, an invitation uh, for a handbook chapter, and it was really quite an exciting one because this is the this book was the first handbook on on language learning motivation. So it was a real honor to be included in there, um, you know, to have a chapter on the using the framework that we that we've been using for many years in our lab, and uh, it became a lab project. So my co-authors are my students. Um, everybody got in, you know, a portion of the paper to work on, and um, we all worked together and sp- <laughs> spent many hours. Some of them in the faculty club uh patio hashing out how we were going to do this paper and uh, what we thought was important to write up about um so that was that
0: yep that was how the chapter came together there wow that's you must be really proud of that because reading through the chapter it did seem like one voice which i think can be hard to do when you have multiple co-authors
1: it, it it can be, and you know, I, I as you know, as the you know as as the supervisor to all my co-authors there. I hope I didn't use too much of my own voice in there, um, but you know, we really did spend a lot of time um, talking through things together uh, on a really regular basis. Perhaps more regular than most co-authors get to, because we're in the lab together all the time, every day. So um, yeah, it came, yeah, yeah. It came together pretty nicely. So,
0: and so again, this is chapter five in the Palgrave handbook of motivation for language learning. The editors, Lamb, Sizer, Henry, and Ryan. So Sizer, I'm familiar with because Al, Ali al Hori did a replication of a Sizer study. And I think Stephen Ryan's going to be coming on the podcast, uh, later on. Are you, are, are you colleagues with, with those four editors?
1: I do. Yes. I know them from conferences and things like that. Yeah. So we're we're all interested in the same general area. So yeah, it's it's great to get together and talk about
0: talk shop with them. How was the, the process of, were there a lot of edits or did they, did it take a long time to put it all together?
1: Um, it probably took a little longer as since we were working as a team, um, just because we you know it's um, you, you know, if one person's working on something, they can do it all the time. We had to set up meetings and things like that. But I don't recall there being more than one round of editing, you know, to make sure that the you know, where the editors you know, suggested some changes and, you know, make some connections with other chapters. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't recall that part being too, uh,
0: too difficult because just, the reason why I ask is, you know, it sounds like this was a really smooth process. I'm just looking how many people are involved. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven authors, four editors. Um, I would just assume that it was a nightmare. (laughs) So, you know, everyone, everyone having an opinion and picking apart a sentence here and, uh, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Oh, the the third editor hasn't read it yet. So, you know, he or she will get back to you next week and that sort of thing. But, But it sounds like it was really smooth.
1: Yeah, it was. It was very smooth. And to be honest, I think, I think we were assigned one editor and perhaps the other, other editors might've read it, but we interacted with only one of the editors
0: I see. Well, yeah. you just just talking to you now. You seem like a very calm, relaxed person. So maybe maybe that helps having having someone with a cool head involved.
1: Well, I'm not sure my students would agree with you, but <laughs> at eight o'clock at night, um, <laughs> I feel quite calm. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, before we get into the paper, I, I, I'm always curious about people's academic background. So if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to kind of give the floor to you. If, if you don't mind, you know, setting the stage for your academic career, you know, what led you through your bachelor's to your PhD and, and were you interested in this topic, even going back to elementary school or middle school or high school, or were there some twists and turns along the way? Were, was there, was there moments when you were deep into the psychology work? where you thought oh this might be a little bit too difficult that, that sort of thing uh, and right. then and also maybe like you know maybe finishing off the story uh, you know your your career at the University of Alberta um so i i just kind of like i don't i don't really i'm not going to it's not going to be like q q a q a but if you could just give the sure. audience a bit of your background that would be great
1: yeah sure glad to um well i guess i'd always been uh, kind of a languagey person i was <laughs> a kid i was I was into writing poetry and I read, I was a, I'm a reader. Um, I would read a novel a day, you know, parents tell their kids to get off the screens and, you know, my mom would tell me to get my nose out of the book and clean up my room sort of thing. So Mm. I, I just, I just loved writing and reading. And, um, and I was really fortunate to, uh, at one point go to a high school where there were a whole bunch of, languages being offered um, from Latin and Hebrew and German and Spanish and French and I'm probably forgetting um, one but it was a real opportunity and so I just uh, you know I learned as many different languages as I could and when I went away to university my intention well I, I went to the University of Ottawa and it's kind of a unique university in Canada because it's a bilingual university.
0: Mm.
1: And um, I I always had a passion for for English and literature, Um, but when I went to Ottawa, I decided to study French literature. Okay. So, um, so while I had in mind that I was going into a writing career, literature career, um, I took a course in linguistics, and I didn't know what linguistics was. I, um, y- you know, I it just sounded intriguing from the course syllabus, and the textbook looked rather fascinating. It had all sorts of things about linguistic relativity and about how language changes over time and hmm. how children learn language and i took that course from someone named ian Mackay, and um, i was mesmerized i was completely smitten with linguistics and um, so i shifted gears and instead of pursuing an arts degree, degree i went into social uh Instead of going in humanities I went in the social sciences direction and
0: I Wait, can I stop you real quick? So yeah, sure. your your initial goal was to to study French literature?
1: French literature or English literature,
0: you know, lit- so literature. So wait, how how good how good at French were you?
1: I well eventually over I wasn't that I mean I was as good as a uh, as an English Canadian from a r- small <laughs> town of five thousand people could possibly be, uh, which is not good, <laughs> and it's very typical, especially at that time, for English Canadians not to, despite the years of French education, to not be able to speak uh, French terribly well. But um, but I liked I liked learning languages. I liked that to me was just a part of. Um, uh you know kind of went along with uh just uh literature and
0: language if if we were going to play the what the what if game and you you decided to go the french literature route where where would that have taken you would you like inevitably would you have become a french teacher or you would have moved to france or what what, did you see a future at that point before you shifted years
1: after i got after i actually arrived at the university of Al- uh, of ottawa and i took my first french courses i realized that if i wanted to study literature i wanted to study my native language I that see. i okay. i didn't want to study french so at the at my first year at the end of my first year i thought i might switch over into english literature not drop but maybe have french lit as a minor oh, um, i see yeah so No, I don't think I would have become a teacher. Um, If anything, I was kind of gearing to a writing career, like journalism or um, uh, something like that.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. Uh, So then you shifted gears. You were in what in your second year, third year? So
1: yep. That's um, in my second year. I shifted gears into linguistics, and I picked up psychology because it was very closely linked to what I was interested in linguistics. And then I um, eventually took linguistics and psychology courses, graduated with a psychology degree, and then the next year finished my linguistics degree. Wow. So, yeah, so I had I shifted gears completely into the social sciences. Um, but I took a year off um, in my third year, and I went. I was an au pair in Switzerland. Um, in the what? German part of Switzerland. And, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I learned I I learned German in a Swiss German environment, and um, when I came back, I was uh, I wanted to study bilingualism. It was the University of Ottawa. Uh, it was French English bilingualism, but I was, you know, also interested in in German, and um, I was very interested in the cognitive you know, you know, the, you know, how bilinguals think, Hmm. but the professor in psychology, I was, I was going to do my honors degree, but the professor in the psychology department who studied the, you know, the, how the cognition of, of bilinguals, he had a full slate of honors students. And he said, you know, there's this other prof down the hall and he studies social psychology And he looks at bilingualism, so you might go down and talk to him. Mm. And I have to confess to you that I really didn't like social psychology um, Mm. at that time. But I went down and I spoke to um, a man named Richard Clement, and um, he started to talk about things like um, how learning language is related to identities and... um, um the kinds of um oh the kinds of strains that people experience when they're juggling cultures and that Mm. sort of thing and i thought this is amazing somebody is studying exactly what happened to me when i was in switzerland and i did like the
0: culture shock sort of
1: yeah exactly the culture mm. shock um the 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 suddenly realizing yeah i'm canadian i didn't even ever think of what that meant before Uh um so realizing those those identities that we don't know we have until they're um echoed back to us from, you know, when we're in different environments. Mm. And, uh, mm. yeah, so I did my honors degree with him looking at the motivation. Why were people motivated to learn German? Mm. And um, it basically went on from there. I just loved the research so much. Um, and um, I decided to continue my my doctoral studies with, uh, Richard Clément is my supervisor. And, um, so I stayed at the university of Ottawa and did my doctoral degree there. Um, yeah. And,
0: um, well, what about the, the Peter McIntyre intersection? Cause if people haven't listened, maybe they can push pause and listen to citation 51. Uh, the reason why I'm talking to you today is because, um, Peter McIntyre essentially gave you credit for his direction in life. And, and, uh, I don't remember exactly where it was, but he said that you like handed him a book or something. So he wasn't at Ottawa, was he?
1: Yes, he was. So
0: he was. Okay.
1: Yes. So he, um, so Peter studied, uh, his doctoral supervisor was Bob Gardner and Bob Gardner was, was basically the person who started all the research on, language learning motivation and the social psychology of motivation and bob gardner was richard Clément's supervisor very early on Mm. Um, so when peter finished his work with bob gardner he came to work with richard as a postdoctoral student and i was just um i was i had been i was a doctoral student i can't remember when i was probably in about my third year and um, the interesting thing was that um, for one of the years that um, Peter was there for two years, and in the first year, Richard was on sabbatical. So he went away to California, and um, Peter and I were left in the lab with you know some other graduate students. But Richard left us with permission to use some of the money from... Uh, from his research budget and so peter and i put our heads together and came up with a few projects together um that richard supervised from afar and so we had a great time that that lab was just really productive and energetic it was a wonderful place to work Um, we had lunch together every single day all of us um and um so, yeah, so I guess um, I heard Peter's talk um, on Lost in Citations and uh, he mentioned that I gave him a book by um, a man named McCroskey um, who was interested in this idea of willingness to communicate. And that uh, first paper that I wrote with Richard and Peter and um, Sultan Dornier on willingness to communicate, that was all stimulated, that, that was all came out at that time. Um, Zoltan Dornier had come to visit um, in Ottawa, and we got talking about, uh, again, you know, sitting together and talking about what we saw as being gaps in in what people were talking about around language acquisition and language learning. And that's how that uh, paper uh, in which we argued that Maybe proficiency shouldn't be the goal or the sole goal of, of language teaching and language learning, but um, maybe more so the, the um, inspiring students to be willing to communicate with others. So what gets students talking and using their language? Um, because we know that you have to use a language to become competent in it. Anyway, that there's sort of a mutual uh, 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 dynamic there, where the more you use it, the better you get at it, and the better you get at it, the more you can use it, and it just kind of they feed into each other. So that was kind of the uh, the thinking
0: at that time. What what was it like meeting Dornier? Because he wasn't, I get get a bit confused because Dornier is so linked in the field of motivation. Um, But was he studying psychology at the time?
1: Well, he was. He was studying motivation, and we we all studied motivation. Gardner Gardner's uh, was a motivational model. Richard Clément had his own motivational um, model, and um, Zoltan was um, had just published uh, a few key paper, a few papers that you know were his um, initial. discussions about motivation and language learning so um, it, it at that time there weren't very many people studying motivation we were pretty much it and um, I remember being at, uh, at a conference for the American Association of Applied Linguistics in Vancouver and we uh, Bob Gardner and Peter McIntyre Zoltan Richard and I were, sitting together and i think peter said something like i think everybody who studies motivation is sitting right here there weren't very (laughs) many people interested in it at all people were focused on you know more um you know at the time it was i think they would be thinking about task-based learning and interlanguage and things like that um and so you know it was kind of a natural you know, magnet to be drawn to other people who were kind of thinking about the same things that that you were thinking about. It was, you know, just fantastic to have that that chance to to share your excitement about that topic.
0: I mean, as the years went on, and you saw more and more people studying motivation, and it sort of blossomed into like a huge field. Um, if you just look at the the amount of citations over the years. What, what was your feeling about that? Because again, coming back to the Ali al Hori talk, um, this idea of, you know, the psychologists like yourself in the early nineties, and then it's kind of split to there's applied linguistics, studying motivation. Did you have a feeling that this was not appropriate and that they the only people that had, had psychology backgrounds should be doing this work? Or was your impression that, okay, as long as the research is solid and... And the design is solid. Then anyone can 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 go in this direction. I mean, was there like a territorial aspect of it?
1: Well, it was hard to be territorial about it. Um, Like, none of us, except for Zoltan, none of us were teachers. Um, And I think that in part is that, yes, applied linguistic applied linguistic linguists picked picked it up and you know ran with the ball. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were teachers, they were involved in it, and that was something that we couldn't really bring to the table. So, you know, it was a natural, um, most of the people who were, well, there were, of course, other people like um, Rebecca Oxford and Elaine Horwitz, um, and I'm sure other people I'm forgetting now, and and I'm sorry about that, um, who also had an impact on, on what we were talking about. But these people... They had experience in the classroom, which is something that we didn't have. And in, in fact, where we were coming from in the Canadian context um, was largely focused on French English relations and not necessarily what was happening in the classroom, but what was uh-huh. happening um, in that um, socio political environment. So looking at things like um, the nature of the relationships between those groups and how that would impact motivation. Um, So those were things we were thinking of. So Zoltan kind of with his work, he kind of brought the language, he brought more of a focus onto the language classroom, um, which is something that, um, yeah, we were a little more distant from. I have had times when I read papers and see theoretical models um, I have had concerns about how psychological theory has been re- represented or it, and it's interesting because we borrow we should be borrowing ideas from other disciplines um, so and and it, it doesn't have to be exact copies we should, you know, we we adapt them, we 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 build on them. We, you know, um, we're inspired by them, and we take them in new directions. So that's all a good thing. I I think some of the concerns I have um, working at, at the interdisciplinary, at that intersection between disciplines, is that you really need to know both get to know as well as possible, both disciplines to do good
0: interdisciplinary research. And I think some people are really fantastic at it. So over the years, did you find a lot of people were reaching out to you to sort of collaborate and, and you could add your voice, um, with your background in psychology?
1: Hmm. No,
0: <laughs> because I think that was the, that was the main point. Uh, Ali al Huri was making that like exactly what you said, but people should be reaching out and collaborating with researchers that have, you know, strong background in that field. So if you're,
1: I think that's really critical. I, I agree completely. Um, It has always seemed to me that if I was going, that if I was going to draw from a, for instance, a theory, I would want to be sure at least going I would want to be sure that that I can talk the talk, and that my research would be seen as being um, uh, uh, up to snuff in that original discipline before I would take it somewhere else. Like, would it if I were to do a study on self-determination theory? I want to go to the self-determination theory conference and present it there to make sure that i'm not misunderstand and i'm less concerned about that at this point in the game but early on you know it was important to me that i go there and i present my research on language learning um, to be sure that i was um, you know understanding the theory well um, before i was sort of introducing it into the the language learning realm so I think for me that's really important um, of course we can't you know it's it's a lot to, to try and invest yourself in two different disciplines and going to different conferences and publishing in different sets of journals and and all that so I certainly understand the limitations of doing that we're only human we only have so many hours in the day but I think in yeah. principle that's the way to do it
0: Alright, well that's a good segue. Let's um let's jump into some of the topics in the chapter. Again, this is chapter five in the Paul Grave Handbook of Motivation for Language Learning, Self-Determination and Motivated Engagement in Language Learning. Um again, first of all, I I like I said before, I, I thought this was a very I don't want to say easy chapter to read. There were some 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 words that I had never seen before and such, but it was, it was, it was very well put together. It, I felt like it was, like I went, uh, what's the best way to put it? Um, y- you were a good tour guide, you and your co-authors. You, you guided the reader where, where the reader needed to go, and you brought up some really interesting topics. I guess um, let's start in the section, uh, a brief review of self-determination theory. So- you write grounded in existential humanistic and organismic psychologies. So I think I understand humanistic and organismic, but can you talk a little bit about existential?
1: Yeah. So self-determination theory is, is, um, is a unique, well, I'll start maybe with the humanism. It's, it's in, in, um, when you think about the context of psychology, um, at the time that uh, Ed D.C. and Richard Ryan were were developing their ideas around self-determination theory in the 70s and 80s, um, the, the, the main um, ways of thinking about motivation were either in terms of learning theories um, or in terms of, um uh, sorry in terms of um yeah learning theories or or um, um you know thinking about things like punishments and rewards or reinforcements and and um and and punishments mm-hmm. um so things external we you know we're we, we do things because we get reinforced for that or we don't do things when we get, you know, when we, um, are punished for them, mm-hmm. um, or, or we have, um, uh, so those were, those were the kind of prominent ways of thinking about it. And, uh, um, DC and Ryan were, were, you know, um, and, uh, so they were clinical psychologists, um, and uh, and so they were they were quite interested in the from a humanistic perspective, um, you know, that there were unique things about the human about humans and they had particular psychological needs mm. that needed to be satisfied. And that really important in that that the, these needs are kind of there's a, a sense of the self that is really important to um to how human beings work, that we we are self-developing creatures. That's a mm. one of the things that we need to do in life. Um, so you know we need to th- we, we are meaning make th- that existentialism is about us making meaning in our lives and that we do things because they are meaningful to us. Um, mm. Not because we're being rewarded but because um I mean, you can, and people have tried to frame this in terms of reward systems, but it's um, it's it's basically about us making meaning for our own lives and that we have um, a, a drive to do this, and that we are the organismic part is that we are constantly developing and we are interacting with our environment. And I always use the analogy of an amoeba that we interact with our environment. We, we pull things into ourselves and we incorporate it into our bodies and move through lives and we incorporate it into our sense of selves as we develop. Um, I'm doing a whole bunch of hand gestures here that you
0: can't see, but they all are
1: very <laughs> inclusive. <laughs> so you're
0: saying, so it's a, a human psychological need to find m- meaning in their lives.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And then one might argue that advertising systems, uh, manipulate that need or, you know, because it seems, I don't know the more, I I don't know what it's like in Canada, but, um, just people are just stuck on their phones all the time. Like my students, I, I tell them to put their phones down. Uh, I try to limit the screen time even because it's just, I don't know what they're looking at but I, I don't know if that's where they're going to find the meaning. Is it, is, I mean, (laughs) when you said that, the first thing I thought about is, yeah, they're looking for meaning, but I don't know if they're looking at it in the right ways. And I don't, I don't even know if they know what, I don't even, if they know what they're doing, it's like you're being guided to think in a way that's not autonomous at all.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, the, I think the, 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 um, the idea here is that if we don't have meaning in life, and psychological if we if we aren't feeling that we're working in a way that's meaningful to us, then that's when dysfunction, psychological dysfunction happens. We don't thrive under those conditions. So, you know, if we get distracted by um uh, if we get distracted by how we appear to other people with our selfies and our TikToks and all that sort of thing, or we get caught up in buying stuff that ultimately is kind of meaningless, um, it's, when we when we are missing that, then we are likely to not thrive, become depressed, experience anxiety, those kinds of, of dysfunctional Things and so it's it's important to come back to well, what's meaningful to you? What do you do? You
0: think it uh, humans are wired in a way to naturally understand when meaning occurs? So, for example, if if someone if someone experiences a, a true meaningful experience, they can recognize it. So, what I ask the question is: when you're doing all these things that aren't meaningful, do we do we know it? or is that something that has to be experienced or learned or like pointed out by someone else
1: I think I think I think um, I think we might look for like if our friends tell us that it's meaningful to have TikTok videos up there we might buy into that for a while mhm and maybe it does become important to some people. Maybe, you know, maybe that is ultimately how they define themselves and what's important in their lives. And there's some discussion in self-determination theory and related research about whether there are certain things like looking for status and um, uh, material wealth and those sorts of things, whether there are certain goals that might be inherently um, problematic And, you know, other people argue, well, if it's meaningful to you, then isn't that good? You know, there's, there's debate around, around that. So I think that's one of the things, um, so do people recognize it? I think people have to be reflective to Mm -hmm. be able to pull the meaning together. So if they're not reflected, you know, and I think we all engage in things that aren't terribly meaningful, you know, like watching, during the pandemic, you know, hours of Netflix that, Mm -hmm. you know, weren't really doing much for us or whatever. Um, so I I do think we do distractions, you know, with it's, it's, it's work to
0: be constantly finding me. You know what, that is such a great point. Um, what you just said, because I don't know what your hypothesis was when this whole thing happened and everyone was doing lockdown. I actually thought it was good for society for everyone to take a break and actually think about our lives and think about the direction of society and just uh, how how often does society get a chance to push pause and people are like, oh, I'm I'm too busy to read up on my local politics or I'm too busy. to." It's like I thought, oh, now everyone's going to take a break and reflect on their lives and think about the direction. And we all have this great. And it was it didn't happen that way. It was just people like, oh, I'm just watching Netflix all the time or I'm just like drinking a bottle of vodka every night. It's like it it's like it was strange I I, I mean maybe maybe I'm painting with a broad stroke but I thought there would be more interesting ideas that came out of that time where it just seemed like everyone I guess maybe that's another conversation where you have to be busy to be more productive I, I don't know but I I thought I thought I was gonna see some and maybe there are changes that are are going to emerge of people having time to think and read more books and stuff but I didn't get that impression. Uh, again, maybe it's a different conversation. I didn't get that impression of what I saw on social media and I guess we can't trust everything in social media, but you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I, I, I am nodding furiously, you know, when you said, you know, maybe COVID will be a time to reflect and slow down. And I I think people, you know, right now, um, right, you know, people we're just going back to a new academic year and there's a lot of discussion around, um, you know, will we um, will we slow things down a bit? You know, will or will we still be pushing? Um, you know, working weekends and nights and all that sort of stuff, or will we? You know, will we? Rec- well, I guess that's my bias, but will we recognize that we need downtime? Um, so maybe there are some things that are changing. I don't think all people are in a situation where COVID was an opportunity to slow down. Um, You know, Mm. some people really struggled with jobs and financial worries and some people got sick. And um, so. um, So I think there was a good portion of the population for whom it just increased the number of of sort of those really basic needs for shelter and Mm. uh, food and, you know, you know, that really made those much more prominent, whereas the psychological needs tend to be framed on a little, um, you know, after we take care of having enough to eat and having a secure place to live and that sort of thing, that's when we can take the time to to reflect and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it would have changed everything for everybody, but I, but I, would think that for people who were already fairly secure, it might have given them an opportunity to reflect a bit more on what they want out of life and what would be important to them. I guess we'll see. We'll see what comes of this. Uh, It's a good question.
0: Well, let's move on. Um, This is the part of the paper that I liked the most. And again, I guess we're we're. In the context of language learning, but there's just metaphors all over the place, even even if we're backing up, that's what you talked about with the, the need to find meaning or to overcome obstacles and and, and these sort of things. Of course, that, that happens in the language learning process. But all right, so the fundamental psychological needs, you talked about competence, um, you know, uh, sort of, I guess that's related to aptitude and that can build self-confidence. You talked about relatedness and you talked about autonomy, uh, which is something that I'm quite interested in at the moment. Um, and we were talking a little bit uh, before we started recording. you, you classify these as independent. Um, and I guess the main conversation that I wanted to have is I, I feel there, there's some contrasting ideas here because on one hand, you're you're writing about how there's a fundamental psychological need to be validated. Um, or self-validation. I, I guess. I guess maybe those are two different things. I mean, validation from others or self-validation. I guess self-validation is more about autonomy, because I would say if you're if you're relying on validation from others, there's no way you can possibly be truly autonomous. So if if there's this need in us to be validated, but yet autonomy is sort of the ultimate goal. Maybe I just answered my own question is it is are we just talking about the difference between you know external validation and internal validation?
1: Well, I don't think i'm I'm hoping I didn't use the word validation um, because so in talking about relatedness is the sense of connection with other people that other people care about you and that you care about other people and I that, see, okay. That, that that idea about relatedness or connectedness that actually came a little later in self-determination theory when when uh, in 1985 when DC and Ryan were first writing about their perspective um, they were talking about competence and autonomy and and again they were kind of um, uh, not just uh, uh they were sort of responding to Alfred Bandura's notions of self-efficacy, that his idea that um, you have to have a sense of competence, um, that that was really important um, to be motivated. And DC and Ryan came back uh, and said, well, it's not just being competent. As I was saying earlier, um, it, um, we can feel competent about a lot of things, but... We're not necessarily motivated to do them. Um, what we also have to feel like is that we're doing it of our own will. So that sense that the reason for doing it comes from us, um, mm. that is what is meant by autonomy and self-determination theory. It's very closely linked to the notions of, of agency. In fact, I like agency a bit better. Um, but we are agentic. We are making Um, we do things because they are meaningful to us um so we can as i gave the example before we can become very competent in a language um in order to get ready for an exam but as soon as that exam is gone and we get the grade whatever it is um um it's true the more you develop competence that sometimes feeds back into a sense that this might be a meaningful thing for me to do and further your motivation mm-hmm. but um if we don't if it doesn't have that meaningfulness to it we we're likely to let it go you know um I use the example of figure skating. I got to be pretty good at figure skating because my mom wanted me to be good at figure skating. But as soon as I could not <laughs> to figure skating anymore, I was, you know, it wasn't that... I didn't identify as a skater. That wasn't... I wanted to be reading books. My mom wanted me to get some exercise. So it wasn't... Uh, it didn't have that, um, that power. And then it, later on, not long after... Um, D.C. and Ryan incorporated um, this sense of relatedness, of connection with others, and it was it came from thinking from um, human human uh, from ethology, um, and you can probably think back to um, the ideas of of Conrad Lawrence and um, Bowlby, you know, talking about um, animals needs to be connected to uh, social animals needing connection with other animals, you know, little ducklings following Conrad Lawrence because they have bonded to him and that we are social animals and we need to connect to other people as well. And um, that sense of connection and security with other people is a real, as a fundamental basis for us to be able to um, do the risky business of, of of striving for mastery and competence, and, you know, pursuing a meaningful life, um, that that's, uh, we need that foundation and connection with other people.
0: Well, here's Um, the sentence that I was keying on. Uh, Drawing from attachment theory, secure connections with others offer not only an important source of self-validation, but also the necessary social support and scaffolding to take risks and explore novel situations. So maybe I, I misconstrued your, you said important source of self validation. I just think it's tricky because, um, I, I, I kind of liked your explanation. Yes, we all need connection and that's where like teachers and family members can, can, you know, guide people. But if people rely too much on validation, then they could never be autonomous. Right.
1: Yeah. And I, and I agree. There's a, a there's a tricky business there when we, um, when we are relying, we need validation from other people that recognizes that we are capable and competent human beings. Um, it's like a parent, you know, we, we, when our parents validate us, you know, um, or when our friends, um, see us as being worthwhile human beings, um, that is, um, if they don't see us that way, that it, that can really undermine us in 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 ways. So that's such a great. Right. There's 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 always this 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 tricky balance in, um. You know, what is autonomy supportive validation, and what is the kind of validation that if it disappears you're completely um, shattered by it.
0: Well it's I, I think you just made the point there and maybe people don't think about this, but there's the right kind of validation and there's the wrong kind of validation
1: mm-hmm.
0: And that's where I think like social media is playing on the psychological need. People think they're being validated by how many mm-hmm. likes or how many all these all these tricks you know you get the the, the red dot shows above your post. Like that, I think that's the playing on the psychological need for validation, but that's yeah. not that's not real val. Like you said, no, it has to be validating. Yeah. Validating your being a good person, or or like you said, someone, what the golden mirror idea, where you're they 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 see the type of meaning you want in your life and they validate that. Like yeah. if your mom if your mom had said, "Oh my gosh, look how, look at all the books you're reading." this is, this is amazing. You're going to be this great reader and writer one day. Then that would feel better than when your, your mom says, Oh, you had a great, uh, figure skating practice today or something like that. Right.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And and that I think is a really good, we want to be, we we need to be validated for the things that are meaningful to us, that people, you know, they may not even agree with them, but you know, um, um, but they they recognize that it's important to you, and they support you in that.
0: Um, That's fascinating stuff. Um, all right, let's let's kind of move on because I don't want to take too much of your time. I I just I just wanted to talk about uh, your figure uh, five point one on page ninety eight. Um, so yeah. I guess the main point that I thought was interesting is that you can you, you categorized ego involvement as an extrinsic motivation. That seems a bit counterintuitive to me, unless we're again talking about other people, other people's effect on your ego. I always assumed ego would be from within. So can you, can you explain that? It's a bit of a dichotomy to me. Why it's yeah. extrinsic.
1: In part, in part. um, in part, the model that's presented there, and that comes actually from one of the more recent um, uh, papers from um, D.C. and Ryan. Um, in part, the, the, the words that are being used, they're kind of being over, they've been around for a long time and they're changing. So at one time, we made a clear distinction between intrinsic motivation Um, where you're doing something because you find the activity to be inherently interesting and extrinsic motivation is, um, you know, you're doing it because something else is compelling you to do it. But do you see? Yeah. So there was sort of like, I just say dichotomization, uh, two separate things, but DC and Ryan made the point that, well, it's not that straightforward. It's really more of a continuum because, um, Yes, there are probably things that some people resonate to for what, you know, maybe based on genetics, who knows, you know, something early exposure, whatever, that you might just enjoy, um, you just might enjoy them, um, you know, like, uh, you know, you, you just might enjoy sports and running around. Um, and that's just inherently, um, something that is fun to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, for me, the reading the book, the playing with language, that was to a certain extent, that was just fun for me to do. I loved the escapism of getting into a book and, and reading. Um, so there's just, you know, but, you know, my brother didn't, <laughs> that was not his thing. He didn't, you know, he was outside, you know, mucking around doing whatever he wanted to do outside. So there there may be different things that we find different people find inherently interesting. Um and more power to them. If language learning a language is that thing for them, you know, then the lucky teacher who gets to have an intrinsically motivated student, um, the goal is then not to diminish that intrinsic motivation, but to keep it up, right? Uh, because right. we can we can sour people's experiences. So, um, so I think the goal there is to just keep the intrinsic motivation up. But extrinsic motivation isn't just categorical, well, somebody else is making me do it. Um, DC and Ryan wanted to um, uh, elaborate and say, yes, there are some situations where we do things because there's a carrot or a stick. You know, we're going to fail that exam if we don't study this vocabulary list, or we're going to... Um, you know, we're going to get a job increase if I manage to finish this course successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to learn the language. So we, there are times when we do, uh, do do things um, because we have to. Um, and that, you know, that was kind of the far end, the most prototypical notion of extrinsic motivation. But there's times when we do things that we don't love doing them, but we know they're important, and so they're meaningful to us in some way. Um, So it's not because we love doing it, but we think it's important to learn, like, we don't love learning the language, but we think it's important to know another language. Um, And, you know, I think when in our interviews with people, you know, good examples come from heritage learners who's... Who say, you know, but learning this language is important to me because it's, it's, um, I really value connecting to to my family members. Um, I want to know a little bit more about, I think I'll learn more about my culture. And that's important personally to me. Um, So that's, that is uh, that sense of meaningfulness. It's internalized into your sense of self, um, which is quite, which is still extrinsic motivation, but it's quite, a different experience than having to do it to avoid some sort of punishment. And then DC and Ryan suggest that, you know, there's that, that's actually a continuum. So um, between those two points, so, um, um, so you might, you might learn the language because your teacher is going to give you a failing grade if you don't. But we're not always governed by our teachers. We, you know, as we get older, we begin to internalize that a bit. And um, we don't need the teacher there threatening us with a failing grade. So and this is getting into that interjected idea. Our own ego is kind of watching over us saying, you know, if you're going to be a good student, you know, you're going to feel a little bit of guilt and shame if you don't do well on this exam you you know you can do it and if you don't do well you're gonna feel I, I feel guilty if i didn't you know didn't learn this language and actually with heritage language learners some heritage language learners report this feeling You know, you know i feel like i should do it because you know i'm you know, my family is Spanish and, you know, I feel kind of embarrassed when I can't speak the language with Mm. my grandmother. And, um, so it's not, there's no direct carrot or stick for doing it, but it's your own ego. That's telling you, you can do better than this. You, you know, you should do that. So it's a little bit tiny. There's a little bit of internalization there. And um, then further up this continuum of internalization into the self where you're doing it is that you may, um, you may say, well, the, the best example I have of this is people who want to be uh, teachers and they're going to work in an environment where there's lots of children who speak a language um, that, they, that the teacher needs to learn in order to be a good
0: teacher. That's the situation so it, I'm in now.
1: yeah so you know in order for me to get better at um, connecting with my students and being able to 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 help them learn, I need to learn a bit of their language yep. and so that so again it's 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 meaningful um, but in a relatively indirect way so it's mm. helping them achieve something that's important to them um, but it's not the language itself that they really. You know, they'd learn any language and, you know, they're well, probably think, doing other things to help I th- facilitate. I think you just,
0: you just diagnosed me as not in, intrinsically motivated <laughs> because <laughs> because I definitely signed the – I live in Japan and there's there's tests uh, twice a year. And so I sign up for the test because I know my own ego will push – it's not even ego. Like I, I, I don't mind failing because then I can learn what I need to improve. So mm-hmm. I, it might, it might even be the money thing the, Like I, yeah. I have to pay money for the test and then I have to pay money for a teacher and I have to invest my time. So yeah. it's less about like ego. Like if I fail the test, like I know I'll just take it again, but it's like, if I don't right. sign up for the test, I'm just not going to study hard. And then the other yeah. thing is if I don't study, then my, in the, I'm a worse teacher because I can't help those students that have like no English ability. And then that affects my ego because then yeah. I feel like I'm a bad teacher. So it's like, I'm definitely not intrinsically motivated.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I don't think we should feel embarrassed or ashamed about that um, because, you know, there's a tendency to think that intrinsic motivation is, is somehow the best. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and I don't think that's at all true. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's great if people are intrinsically motivated, but that's kind of like. The lucky, you know, the lucky teacher, the lucky person who finds themselves in a situation where they get to do what they love, right? Yeah. Uh, we're we're often externally regulated to do things, or when we know we have to do them. Um, but I think recognizing that um, is, you know, that I think that's just uh, that's part of what helps us to to get through it. So. Um, well, maybe I was going to say something else, oh, but I've
0: lost track of
1: what I was going to say.
0: <laughs> well, let's, let's end on this. Um, because in my situation, I teach first and second year university students compulsory English. And over the years, I, I you know, I, I, my first lesson, I'd always ask, you know, their goals in English and they'd, they'd struggled to come up with their, their goals. And and many students had never traveled overseas um, and, even more disheartening, uh, many students don't really have a desire. I I don't know about in other countries, but in Japan, like the number of students, oh, well, not discounting the COVID era, um, the numbers were going down where people were less, I don't know, Japan's sort of shrinking not only in population, but as far as like just becoming more isolationist, I think. So students have less motivation to, uh, to travel I ask uh, what about interacting with foreigners in your in the city and they said it doesn't happen that much so then I have to come up with some like hypotheticals okay well let's imagine that you run into a foreigner at the restaurant and then let's think about this and then but in the end and you brought it up in the paper in the end these students are forced to take this class <clears throat> and there really is no <clears throat> motivation at all beyond that there's the curriculum was set and the university says this is good for you um, but maybe it would be the same for me when I was in university studying music and my university told me I need to study uh, physics or math. Like, I'm just going to try to get through it. Yeah. So yeah. the question is, for teachers, what are what are some of the psychological... I don't want to say manipulate, um, but <laughs> what are some of the psychological drives or some of the tools or even some of these these uh, concepts we were talking about in Figure 5.1? What What can we do as teachers to... What, what do you think are effective ways to help these type of A-motivated students?
1: Yeah, so um, yeah. So one point I wanted to make just the way we've been talking, you know, about, well, I'm motivated this way or I'm motivated that way. I mm-hmm. think uh, an important thing, you know, is going back to that organismic sort of idea um, is that there's this notion of, of change and a sort of Dynamic idea, um, a developmental idea in in, the, in this particular theory, and um, that we can change depending upon the situation, depending on the time of year. Like students, mm. we know that students motivate, um, uh, intern, uh, you know, as we, there is a tendency in North America, or wherever, across time for students' intrinsic motivation to decline. Mm -hmm. over the grades Mm -hmm. declines across um, the academic year Mm -hmm. Um, but you know and we can all relate to that when the big exam comes we're no longer thinking that we are doing something because we love it we are doing it to get the exam done so um so you know that these aren't you know rock solid traits that people have but they are they change in reaction to the environment so in terms of trying to promote, so in terms of trying to promote a more internalized, a, a more self-determined uh, motivation in students, I, the key is to focus on those three needs. So, how can you help students develop competence? Mm. How can you help them feel connected in that what they're doing, uh, you know? Uh, that what they're doing, they're they're worthwhile as language learners in that particular context, and then that feeling that they have some that the choices that they're making, that 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 how, how they're engaging with the language learning process is is um, meaningful to them, and it's certainly tricky. Um, um, there's just, uh, I'll mention John Marshall Reeve uh, is a, a, a scholar who's done quite a bit of work in education and uh, from a self-determination theory perspective. And so you can, uh, if, if anyone's listening and they want to f- read more about how to do effective uh, teaching from a self-determination theory perspective, um, I would really recommend reading his books. But I think the key is that um, teachers do not motivate their students. Teachers help students to motivate themselves. So they they give them the conditions to help students um, find meaning uh, in in what they're doing. Um, I've had conversations with, te- with teachers who said, oh, they want me to do all these things in these classes, and now I've got to motivate the students on top of it. You know, like, <laughs> how am I supposed to do all that? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, if we want to support um, students' uh, sense of relatedness, well, they have to feel like they belong in the classroom and that the classroom is connected to them. So activities that allow them to do that are important. Um, giving the kind of feedback that um, helps them to develop their sense of competence is really important. And in self-determination theory that's talked about as informational feedback. So um, really focusing on how, um, and I draw a little bit from Carol Dweck's work here, you know, focusing on how do we give back feedback that is going to tell uh, help students see the next steps for improving what they can do. Not just telling them that what they did was right or wrong, but that that information that helps them to build their sense of competence. And then the other the the other thing is focusing on that sense of autonomy. Um, you know that that students need to be paying attention to what. You know, they need to kind of focus on what it is that they want to get out of the course. Um, And it's really tricky in those. um, We're just starting, um, I just did a recent study with uh, a researcher in in England, um, Abigail Parrish, looking at um, uh, student language learners who are in contexts where they have a program that requires them to learn the language. And program that where that's not a requirement, and I think it is really tricky when, you know, when students have to learn the language. There's no choice; it's being forced on them, uh, or required of them. You know, that is tricky to negotiate. I no denying it. Um, we don't know a lot about that. Um, we haven't studied it a lot, um, but. You know, as much as possible, having them identify what's meaningful to them to learn, um, and helping them with that. You know, helping to explain to them or give them reasons that they can consider. Um, you know, why this might be important to know. Um, you know, and then we kind of have to hope they take it from there. We can't. We can't force people to you know, think things are meaningful if they don't think things are meaningful.
0: Um, And maybe the last thing that you mentioned in the paper, some, some future research you'd like to see um, more research in the, the effects of uh, motive, the effects of the interconnectedness with the community and motivation. Is that, is that what you'd like to see more of?
1: Um yeah so i mean we have been focused for a long time a long time on the language classroom so we've kind of gone through a phase in motivation research where there's been a lot of attention paid to the dynamics within the classroom and i think that's really important the social psychologist in me wants to step outside of the classroom and say hey language is learned and used outside of the classroom and um and we need to pay a tent more attention to that, and we need to think about how the dynamics of what's going on outside the classroom might play into why people learn, you know, why they're motivated or not to learn languages. So,
0: hmm.
1: yes. So I think that I think that is important, and um, you know, I also think it's um, you know, some of the other things I think we need to do, and I think this is. Uh, partly why I find this area of research interesting is because there's a, the importance of the dynamic and changeable nature, uh, and developmental nature of, of, of motivation. Um, I think this is something that we really need to focus on and we're, we're, I think there's, I think we need to spend more time looking maybe at developmental psychologists and how they look at change over time. Um, so I think that is an interesting avenue to take. We are, you know, there's lots of discussions about complex dynamic systems, which fits in there very well. Um, so I think that's a that's another important thing that we need to spend time looking at
0: as oh, well. And, yeah. Um so again, this was chapter five in the Paul Grave Handbook of Motivation for Language Learning, self-determination and motivated engagement in language learning. Uh, Dr. Knowles, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly, and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com. Where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, A very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.